welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Eleven countries in the world today have active war zones in which a thousand or more are killed each year. How many of us, outside of being trained and sent, would willingly enter these war zones? And yet, every day, many of us willingly walk, proudly unprepared, into spiritual war zones. Lead teacher Randy Pope concludes the series The Unseen, this message entitled Unseen War Zones, which covers 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 27. Thank you for joining us today. When I use the word war zone, it can mean different things in different environments. If we're in the military world, it would be referring to a designated area of intense conflict with the enemy. If we're talking about family circles, uh, perhaps we're talking about an in-law's house uh, when you have to go there if there's a bad relationship. Uh, maybe for kids, it could be, as it was for my brother and me, the back seat of a car on a trip where there's an imaginary line that's been drawn and saying, come across it, there's going to be conflict. Well, uh, the reality is, in general, it's simply referring to specific areas of engaged conflict with those with whom we are in opposition. For those who live day to day, have to live in what would be considered war zones, regardless the type, they know better than any the heightened awareness and sensitivity that has to exist to make it through such places of war zone. The person who is damaged the most, the one that's in the greatest peril, is the one who does not recognize the war zone to be such and therefore goes in without sensitivity, without awareness, and then gets hit not understanding what happened from the blind side. The same can be true of what we call spiritual environments or war zones. The most dangerous of all is to walk into war zones unaware and assume it's not a war zone and it is. And there are spiritual war zones that we learn about from Scripture. But what we're going to do over these next minutes is we're going to go into a study of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, electronic, hardcover, copy, doesn't matter. You just open your Bibles. I want to see us week to week have our Bibles here. Open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What we want to do is we want to learn to identify and then appropriately deal with spiritual war zones that exist. To do this, what we're going to do is we're going to go back in time and we're going to look uh, through the teaching of the Apostle Paul, that which is the Word of God, given to us for instruction, we want to learn through Paul's experience what were the war zones of his day. He addresses one particular war zone. We can learn a lot from just what he teaches us through that cultural experience of the war zone of the day. Then we want to move into a few cautions then we want to do something that's a little bit more difficult, and that is we want to try to figure out what are the war zones today, modern-day spiritual war zones. I can tell you right now, 
The audience would be all who are here, but primary in my mind is our young people. You people who are young, our students, our children, you listen as you've never listened before to a message that I've given. This may be the most important thing that I've ever taught for our youth. And my prayer, Carol and I drove over here and we prayed. God, would you use this in our youth? Would you spare some incredible pain and heartache, moral disasters, relational disasters, all kind of issues that are going to leave scars and pain and heartache for a lifetime just because they heard and followed what the Word of God has to say on this subject? It is that important. Now, for our new people who are among us, we're in a series, and uh, the series is on the unseen. And we are going to be addressing the last subject matter of this series today. So you know where we've come from. Uh, we're teaching what the Word of God teaches, that there is that which is not seen with the naked eye that is as real as that which we do see. Principalities and powers. An angelic world. And so we've talked about the angelic world, the angels that are good. We've talked about things such as guardian angels. Are there such? The Bible teaches it. We try to learn a little bit about the good angels, their roles that they play. Then we spent time talking about the bad angels, their origin, their plans, what their limitations are, all kinds of things. In fact, we then started delving into the, the bigger issue of, of the evil one's allies. And we talked about three allies that exist, the sea beast, the false prophet. Uh, we've talked about the harlot, the great harlot or Babylon. And what that means today, as it meant in all generations from the time written till today, that those three exist live and well. We better know who they are. If they're the allies to the evil one, we better understand who they are and what their intention, how they operate. Then we talked about the strategy of the evil one. We talked about the strategy to tempt, the strategy to deceive, the strategy to accuse. Then we dealt with the armor of God. How do you resist the evil one? How do you cause him to flee from us in time of peril? And we talked about the various components to the, to the armor and what they mean and how you embrace them and so forth and so on. So having covered all of those things, now we bring conclusion by talking about this subject matter of spiritual war zones. Now, in the day of Paul, as he writes a particular community called Corinth in the Christian church at Corinth, we call them the Corinthians. The book is called the book of Corinthians. He's going to address a situation of their day and say, here is a common war zone that you need to be aware of. And he instructs, and by doing so, we learn a lot about how we deal with the modern-day war zones that we face. He's faced with the dilemma, the question that's being promoted. What about, what about, what about? Can you do this? Should you do this? Is this a dangerous place to go? And so forth and so on. Well, if you go back and think about it, if you look at history of our modern day even, and the last generations, if you take Catholics and you take Protestants, combine them, let me tell you, the landscape of the moral taboos are everywhere. 
You see it everywhere you turn. The restrictions cannot, should not, must not. Everything from birth control, even if it be a, a legitimate birth control, non-abortive, no, can't do that. There was a time where the Catholics would say, can't have meat on Friday. Now, there was uh, the prohibition to, uh, obviously, alcohol. and You can't touch alcohol. Uh, oh, you can't go to movies. That would be a horrible thing to do. Uh, you certainly don't dance and gambling of any form. In fact, no, I mean, there can't be card playing. Even if it be without money, you're not supposed to be playing cards because it's associated to that, and therefore you don't do it and so forth and so on. And the, the list just goes on and on. It's brought a horrible reputation to the modern church today where now people perceive the church and their first thought is it's a, it's a bunch of people who just can't do anything that's actually enjoyable. Why would I want to be a part of it? Well, the truth of it is we get in great danger when we begin to prohibit something that God doesn't. And that's where we get into our trouble. At the same time, if you looked in the day of Corinth or today, the people that are prohibitionists in whatever arena we're talking about typically are good people. And they have wonderful intentions. And, and they can rationalize very clearly why we would prohibit such. And if you had loved ones or maybe you've struggled with alcohol and you know the damage that alcoholism can bring, the pain and the heartache and separation, all this stuff, and finally say, look, it's just wrong to drink. Well, that's what happens. The prohibition comes and everything now is don't do, don't do, don't do. So what we need to learn is, well, wait, those intentions are well put, but, but how do you determine what is the things that should be done and shouldn't be done? And that's how Paul's going to address it. Here's how he does it. In chapter 8 and in chapter 10, we won't touch chapter 8, but he is basically helping us understand a dilemma of the day. The dilemma had to do with meat that had been sacrificed on heathen altars to heathen idols. And the meat that was used, partly, part of it would be burned as the sacrifice, and then other parts that were very edible, very good meats, were left. And now the question, what about that meat? Question number one, if that meat that was left over, which was then often used, at least part of it was used for a feast that attended the celebration of the altar, the sacrifice. If you ate that meat at one of those festivities, would it be inappropriate? Number two, what about meat that had been sacrificed, had been left over, had been taken home by some of the participants, and they invite you, a Christian, to come over to their home, and they announce to you, by the way, this is the meat we got from the sacrifice that was left over. Can you eat that meat or should you? They know that's inappropriate. Third question. What about meat that has been left over from the sacrifice, offered at the altar, not burned, left over, and now taken to the marketplace, which often would happen with some of the meat? It would be up for sale. Now, is it okay as a Christian to go take this meat that has literally been offered to pagan gods and actually purchase it and eat it for your meal? Would that be inappropriate? Now, if I ask you, you vote on which you think is the appropriate right and wrong of those three. All right, all wrong, one wrong, two right. What, you know, what is it? I bet we would hear incredible differences in the audience as to what we believed would be the right thing. 
That's what was happening in Corinth. One Christian said, oh, that's okay. You can't do that. And they're divided over it and there's questioning. So Paul is going to bring in this chapter an answer to the question. To make it very quick and simple, here it is. The latter two meat served in a home and you're invited. And that meat's been sacrificed or offered. Feel free to eat it. Meat in the marketplace. Been offered and now left over and sold. It may be cheaper. Good. Go buy it. No problem. You eat it. On this condition that you do not do it in the presence of someone whose conscience is bound to do it, though not uh, the conscience is not schooled well, does not understand that it's not inappropriate, but because they think it is, whatever's not of faith is sin, and you're tempting them to do the same, and you're a role model perhaps, don't do such that would cause them to do something they shouldn't do, even though the activity itself is okay. The first, though, no, do not eat the meat offered at one of these festivals, the meals that follow after the ceremony. You do not do that. Now the question is, why? And from doing that study, we understand how we determine the war zones of today. So, take your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 13. I'm not going to give commentary on it because time just does not permit. The real heart of the teaching that we need to have follows, but I'll give you the bigger picture uh, just to, uh, to get us started here. Identifying Corinth's spiritual war zones. Verse 1 begins like this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, the first four verses is setting us up to say these people of Israel were the people of God, and God was there and, uh, and, and blessing them and so forth. Christ even was there with the rock and so forth, and Good stuff. Everything's fine. However, notice verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Be interesting to go through all those studies, but we don't have time. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Notice the context of that very popular verse many of us have heard before. Take heed. If you think you can stand, be careful. You may be about to fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, 
but will with the temptation make a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. So he ends this introduction by saying, hey, look, be careful. If you think, oh, no problem for me, no problem for me, no problem for me. Oh, I could go to one of those feasts. It wouldn't be a big issue to me, which is where he's coming. Be careful. You'll be the one that'll fall so quickly. And by the way, I know if you do go to some place like that, there's no temptation t- taking you, but which there is an escape. I understand that. That's what he's saying. But now he wants to build his argument. So he comes to verse 14. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, as I've often taught around here, whenever you see a therefore, you ask what it's therefore, right? He is saying, in light of all of that, now I'm going to be teaching you the importance of fleeing from immorality. We've read it in 1 Peter. Resist the evil one, and he will flee from you. Well, same thing, same basic teaching. Therefore, it says here, just, you know, watch out. Now, we can learn from history that God does not take lightly to sin. We know there. If you look back, you see God doing things against the people of God. They were his people. He loved them. But boy, the displeasure of God was shown in some very, very strong ways. And I say, be careful. If you're beginning to think, oh, uh, because of the wonderful grace I'm learning about, I don't have to ever, ever, ever worry about the displeasure of God. No, we should. We should be very concerned, not worried that our status with God will ever be changed, that his love will ever be diminished. Never, never, never. But, oh, yes, he loves us so much that he will be displeased with our sin, even as any of us as parents, because of the love of our children, I say, who cares what my kids do? It doesn't matter. Who cares? You don't love them if you don't care. If the sin that your children are part of does not cause you to rise up and say, no, something's wrong. God does the same. So it has nothing to do with acceptance at all. That's bound in the righteousness of Christ, what he's done for us. But otherwise, we want to be cautious there, very careful. Verse 13, oh, we can resist, yeah, but listen to Robertson and Plummer in their commentary. I like what it says. They must not deliberately go into temptation and then expect God to deliver them. They say, well, be careful with that. So then he uses the word flee, flee immorality. Well, it's in the, it's what's called a present imperative. Imperative is, is easier to understand, something that must be done. Present is a tense, and it means a continuous, that you must keep on and keep on and keep on fleeing, keep on fleeing, keep on fleeing. Anything you see that's of an idolatrous nature, the teaching here is watch out. That is a spiritual war zone. If you see it to be of idolatrous nature, then you want to back away from that space. The feasts that he's referring to here were designed, literally their design was to excite the passions of the sinful heart. And Paul knew that. That was the design of what that activity was all about. The gathering was for that purpose. So he said, obviously, you don't want to be a part of that. That would be wrong to do so. Now, in verse 15, he's going to appeal to the wisdom. Corinthians thought of themselves as the wisest of people. Verse 15 goes like this. I speak as to wise men. Uh, He's just capturing their attention by saying, okay, you know you're wise people. Therefore, 
You judge what I say. Watch my argument. And he says, see if you can't see in your wisdom the appropriateness of my argument. And he's going to use two analogies. The first is going to be the analogy of the Lord's table. And the basic teaching is the Lord's table is going to bring you in communion with God. And then he's going to use the opposite side and he's going to say the analogy of the spiritual feasts and the sacrificial aspects of the Old Testament people and those idol worships that would go on. And he says how that brings people in communion with the demons. Very interesting. So here's how it says the analogy of the Lord's table, verses 16 and 17. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So his teaching is simply saying, hey, if by partaking of the table that we share in communion with God, why wouldn't we believe that to do otherwise at a different table, the table of the unholy one, that we wouldn't find communion with him? Basic argument. In fact, we're going to see in a few minutes, verse 20, where these words come up, I don't want you to be sharers in demons. Very interesting. Now we come to the second analogy, and that's the analogy of the idolatrous sacrificial offerings. Verse 18 reads this way. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Very interesting. Are they not sharers in the altar? The altar of what? The altar of the heathen gods. So he says, verse 19, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or an idol is anything? And I bet some of you, when you read that previous verse, I bet when you read the previous verse, your thinking was this, but they're not real gods. I mean, so what? They're not even real. And he's saying, don't get me wrong. I know there are no other gods. I mean, I don't care what you call them and what the, they're not real. They don't even exist. But his teaching is to say, well, I'm not contradicting myself at all. Not at all. He says, to the contrary, look at 20. No, but I say this, that the things with the, which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. And so all of his teaching is simply to say, you know, hey, understand this. I know they're not real gods, but it's the activity involved that is the great, great danger. I'd like you to look at a quote by uh, Jeffrey Williams. He says, the point is not what the worshiper intends, but what is worship actually affects. Here, I'd like to speak to our youth for a minute. You know what, if if I said, hey, I know what you think, and I know when your parents talk to you, I understand what you're going through, are you going to look at me and say, oh man, you know nothing about what I'm thinking about? Because I really don't. Because you know what, I I went through what you go through to some degree, The, the issues were different then, but you know, I had parents, and they told me not to do things, and I looked at them like they were absolutely crazy, as you would look at your own parents. And, and, but I know this, I've been a parent of children not that long ago who we were having to have these discussions 
all the time. I was talking to my youngest son after the first service here. Do you remember some of those discussions that we had about these kind of things? We talked about it for a few minutes. Well, the reality is, I mean, we've talked about this before here. All the, well, Dad, why, why can't I go? Dad, what's wrong with that? I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything wrong. I mean, Dad, don't you trust me? Well, you know, the answer I could give to that would be yes and no and say correctly. Do, do I trust his intentions or her intentions? Well, sure. It might be a child that I go, I, I kind of know where you are and I understand your heart and your life, but, you know, I don't think that's a very good place for you to be, be attentive. Do you not trust me? Well, yes, I trust your intentions, but I don't trust the demonic powers. So I didn't give him the first answer, or I didn't give her the first I'd give him the last answer. I'd say, no, I don't trust you. I mean, what would make you think I would trust you? I wouldn't trust me going there. What makes me think at your age where you are that I should trust you? I wouldn't trust me or anybody else. Not because of what's in your mind and what you're thinking going in. It's the environment that you have no clue you're about to engage in. And without even your intention to be such, you start engaging in communion with the demonic world. Charles Hodge puts it this way, great, great theologian. He says, it was of great importance for the Corinthians to know that it did not depend on their intention, whether they came into communion with devils. The heathen did not intend to worship devils. And yet they did it. What would it avail, therefore, to the reckless Corinthians who attended the sacrificial feast of the heathen to say that they did not intend to worship idols. The question was not what they meant to do, but what they did, not what their intention was, but what was the import and effect of their conduct. That's the real issue. Verse 21, we'll wrap this up with a text here. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Don't think you can be in communion with God and the communion with the demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He comes to verse 22, and he says, Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Is he not angry, by the way, in his jealousy? Sure. To the Christians, do we not make our God jealous? Well, he can't be jealous. We're his righteous. Oh, yeah, he can be jealous. And we're not stronger than he, are we? And the argument basically is, you better be stronger than God if that be the case. And no one is, so don't do it. Don't evoke his jealousy. You do not want to do that. Now, what about beyond these feasts? And so he gives a wrap-up in these verses. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And, and what he's saying there is simply, hey, look, there are other things such as, there'll be the meat, you know, it's offered at here, you know, at a dinner or whatever. He says, all things are lawful, but it doesn't mean all things are profitable. And this was an idea of the people who were weaker of the faith. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Hey, I'm hungry. I want, there's nothing wrong with this stuff. And I, I got to look after my stomach. You know, I need to get something to eat. At the same time, somebody's there that's going to be offended by what you do, a weaker Christian. Then think about them not you. He hits it head on here. Eat anything that's sold in the meat market and without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. 
if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go to their home, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. There it is. So there's the teaching of the modern day, of their day. Not the modern day, but of their day. Now, I'd like to leave some cautions with you. Very quick. I mean, it won't take me a few minutes. But listen to the cautions that are coming out of what he's taught. Here they would be. Youth, young people, children, you particularly, listen well. Number one, spiritual war zones can include activities that appear harmless. We have to ask the question, what is the intention of the activity? What is the intention of blank? Whatever it is, an experience that you're about to have, uh, something you're going to engage in, people you're going to, what, what's the whole intent of this? And if it is of idolatrous nature, not another God, but idolatrous nature, you want to say, whoa, I don't want to walk into that experience. I remember my challenge. I tried to think back to what was happening when I was a year. I'd become a Christian like some of you are as young people here. And I got in high school, and in our high school, they had two male fraternities in my high school. And if you were anybody, you were in one of the two. It was the question of which one, and they rivaled for which was the most popular. But if you were not in one of them, not invited and couldn't get in or whatever, huh? You weren't much of anybody. I didn't have the problem being invited in. I had a lot of friends. I was involved in stuff. And, you know, so I was invited in. I turned down being in both of them. My Christian friend said, why are you not in one of the fraternities? And I said, well, you know, I'm not an older Christian, but I've been a Christian long enough to know that there's certain things that aren't, you know, too desirable, uh, you know, environments that I shouldn't be in, and, and, and I don't see much good in this. Do you know what the, the intention of those two groups were? It was to party. Uh, one was named the Checkers, and the other was named the Charlies. Keep in mind, this is Alabama. <laughs> they had a girl sorority whose only, only job was to raise money for the liquor that was used at the parties. And the big question is, could they not be found out by the police? During their party times, the girls' group was named the Marbles. That gives you another idea. And so, why are you not a checkered child? Why are you not? And I go, I don't think it's a good place to be. Well, what's the problem with you, man? Are you? But I, I never, 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 never regretted. I wonder now. I look at some of my friends that Christians said, oh, it's no big deal. Just jump on in. It's not nothing. And I look now at some of their experiences and I say, God, thank you. And I say to some of you youth, you got a checkers out there and you got a Charlie's. I don't know what they're called. I don't know what they look like. But don't think just because you find yourself in the in crowd to be in that it's worth if you have to have communion with the demons to be able to have it. It is not worth it. The scars, the pain, it'll never compare to the little bit of acceptance that you might have no longer gotten or the little bit of rejection that you may have experienced. It will never be worth it. Be so very, very careful. Number two, caution. To participate in such war zone activities puts one in contact with demons. 
Here's the reality. All right, you see the activity, you see the people, you see the program, you see the, the game, you see whatever it may be, the book, the literature, whatever it is that exposes you to whatever you know is not actually, and you say, but you know what, I really think I can do fine there. The temptation's not going to be a problem to me. I, you know, I know there'll be some, you know, intention, deceit, the evil one, but here's the issue. At these arenas... We have what I would call unusual and unnatural temptation and deception, which leads to accusations that are not natural. In our mind, we say, oh, I won't think that way. I won't do it. Let me tell you, it's just unnatural because it is an arena. His argument, if the table brings you into communion with God, do you not think that some of these activities would bring you in communion with his host? The third and final caution To be exposed to such war zones typically leads to broken fellowship with the Lord. If you have been involved, you are involved now, certainly resist and flee. And then go to the things we've talked about in the series, repentance, prayer, being prayed for, resisting. The the list that we've been talking about through the series Put on the armor of God. Do the things we've been talking about. So very important. Now, the last little piece is to identify some modern-day war zones. I want you to know these are my judgments, my opinions, in part. Some of it will be agreed by all. But the, the point is we've got to make our own judgments. But just to get us into the practical, I would like to suggest four arenas of war zones. And young people, listen carefully. Number one would be amusements. Watch out for amusements. It could be movies, it could be TVs, it could be video games, I don't know. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But you have to discern in the specific of those things, is that a spiritual war zone? If you identify it by its intention, its desire, what it would love for its, its watcher, its listener, or whatever, if you have a sense, then say, uh-uh, careful caution, No. Don't be a judge to somebody else who judges it differently than you. But be sensitive enough to say, is it a war zone? And if you think it is, play safe. Music, a second type of of amusement. Again, is music bad? Obviously not. We used it here in the worship of our God. But if you sense the intention, the thoughts, the things, it brings you into any temptation, be careful. It could be one that is is one of these environments of spiritual war zone. Be careful and, cor- and correctly choose your music. The next two that are on my list of amusements, I would say these, one, these just count in. They are the ones you want to avoid. Sexual activity outside of marriage. And what we do, young people, is we think Oh, yeah, you know what? I, I, love the, I love her. I love him. Oh, you know what? I understand we're going to get married. Oh, it doesn't, no big deal. And I realize this, but I really think I can do this, and I don't think it'll do that. And, I think, and all along, we're talking about all the seen and the obvious, and there is a world of the unseen that brings us into communion with the demonic, and that is not what we want. Just stay away from it. I don't care what logic you can say and how I can int- Don't. Just say No. And the same with illegal drugs, inappropriate drugs. You want to walk into 
to a war zone, just start the drugs. And say, oh, I can handle this and I can do No, there is a, there's something far beyond the natural there that you have to deal with. If the Bible is true, and let me tell you, Christians, we're foolish to say it's just what you see. No, it's far more than what we see. And that's how the evil one can get us into addictions that will affect us for a lifetime. Stay away. A second broad category is literature. The first on my list in literature would be pornography, and I'd say that should be on everybody's list. Just stay away. Oh, but it only does this, and this is how it serves me, and I can, let me tell you, it's all you want, but you're walking into a spiritual war zone, and it is inviting communion with the demonic. Stay away from it. Now, books. Well, obviously, books are wonderful. You want to read good books. But you know if the literature you're reading is such that it provokes the wrong thing, be careful. It could easily be a war zone that we need to stay away from. I know when my father, many of you know the story of my father uh, leaving our family very unexpectedly after 25 years of marriage and all that I'd seen and thought of a wonderful family, everything going on, and my dad disappears and so forth, gone. We were cleaning out all of his stuff, and I never forget, we pulled pillows off the top of his shelf in the, in the, in the walk-in closet, and there were stacks of books. We had no idea he had been reading. And they were just one after the other dealing with the paranormal getting into the spiritual, not the godly, but the spiritual realm in an inappropriate way. And I remember seeing that saying, hmm, I wonder how much that is the reason. Number three, games. Games. Here we're talking about occult-related role-playing games, board games. You know your own generation, what they are today. I know what they were in my children's day and, and in my day. I had an encounter with those games, and I saw some things happen that scared the living daylights out of me, and I thank God that I said, whoa, stay away from that. That's not something just to be played around with. I know in the story of our own church, we've had attempted suicide from some of our young people. To find out why it doesn't make sense and then to see that they had been playing such games that introduced them into a world that is not one you want to walk around in. One of the kids in our church, youth group, that I would have said then, the, the sharpest, most mature and spiritual and whatever, whatever, got involved in these board games. And the family and everybody got so concerned. Next thing you know, they're agnostic, they're running away from God and just never, never, never has turned to the Lord again. We always looked at that and said, hmm, just be careful. Be careful. And the fourth would be occult practices. Astrology, ESP, tarot cards, horoscopes, black magic, white magic, you can, whatever the list may be. I share this story. Many of you know the name Chuck Swindoll, very reputable person. I don't share this in any way to be a sensationalist or not. But he writes of this story, and it's, a, it's an incredible story. A woman came to him as a pastor needing counsel, and here's what she said. I was raised by parents who practiced the black arts. We lived in a coven. My parents were witch and warlock. They practiced the arts. I did too. I invited demonic presence within me. My bed would rock and move. I, by the way, I've, I've dealt with somebody that did the very same and shared the same story about their bed. Interesting when I read this. I have psychic powers. I can tell who's calling before I answer the phone. Many years ago, I was visited by a woman dressed in black. She called my name and my sister's name. We'd never met. 
She said, I would grow up and marry a carpenter named Donald. She said she would come back and visit me when I had my second child. I became a Christian, forgot about all of this, until I fell in love with a man named Donald, who was a carpenter. Now I'm carrying my second child, and I'm scared. There's a real world out there. Oh, I know some say, ah, sensationalist, or who knows if it's true, is not. Let me tell you, whether it's true or not, the world is real out there. There's an unseen world. It's called principalities and powers. It's not just flesh and blood. And the reason I share this is not to make a sensational story. It, it, it just gripes me to see the pulpit used in such a way. But I do it because I'm concerned about many of us and our children who are going to have a lifetime of pain and heartache because they never were introduced to a community, an unseen world that brings us into contact with the demonic. And we've got to be aware. And we've got to be prayerful. I'm going to encourage you. You go back to the series. Listen to each aspect we've talked about. My goal has been to equip you so the unseen world is not foreign. You be prepared. You deal with it. And watch God be blessed. And you as well. As we pray. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're going to ask you if you would uh, to be so gracious and kind to lead us to see the answer to all, the cross of Jesus Christ. As we've talked about the as we've talked about the the robe of righteousness that we're covered in in Christ. May we see ourselves as such and in appreciation and gratitude and power from your spirit indwelling, may we resist these various war zones. Lord, allow us to repent right now. Allow any of us who are not your children to find that clothing right now by coming to the cross and inviting your spirit to indwell and change forever. Would you grant that right now in some individual lives? Would you spare us from the heartache and pain uh, simply because we say we accept what you say? So, Lord, we're going to ask you next week as we come to the table, all of us come to the table, and as we try to take all the teachings that we've gained from this and now fellowship and commune with you at the table, would you use that to cause us to look forward to Christmas and see how it relates to a Christmas coming so that we might walk into it with a spiritual mind and heart. Grant that for your sake and certainly for our own blessing. We thank you in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.